What's up? What's up? What's up? What's up? <laughs> What's up? Great start. I'm doing all right. I'm, um, I had something for our last episode, but we spent the time talking with Kevin about just Kevin things, which was cool. But I did want to tell you, you know that I saw these Broadway shows last week, right? Yes. The audience yes, doesn't know, I, but I know. Um, but I saw The Play That Goes Wrong, Funny Girl, and Moulin Rouge, all because someone I know had some tickets, and it just came up like that and it was fantastically nice of them and I was extremely fortunate but part of that was the they had the tickets because it was something they got as part of the um the Broadway Teachers Union I believe Oh cool so, I didn't realize that Yeah yeah I don't know if I told you this but so along with that we also got to go to workshops um hosted by some of the people in the shows they I got I went to everyone that I was available for because the tickets were for someone else and my schedule didn't exactly work out but like they heard Alex Brightman give a talk about like musical comedy and oh, cool. I yeah I saw a really good one uh after seeing the play that goes wrong the actors talked about how they redesigned the show for different spaces when they went touring and they talked about I saw it here and... on tour sorry I just wanted to say that I saw it right mm. here like in January I think maybe February could you but, tell that it was not like the same in some way, or would you? Know? I have never seen the recorded version of it, so I have no idea what it normally looks like. You know, mm-hmm. I don't know how it's different. I've never. It's, yeah, uh, yeah. <laughs> it's a it, it's a it's a hoot. It was it was just really nice. Of three of the main actors came out and just talked about how they developed all that stuff and and how they made safety happen, and they talked about how they are running all these different different things with different stunts. Like, every day they might have a different stunt that they want to, like, rework, and that's really cool. And they talk about, like, what padding they wear, and they wear a lot of padding. And the other thing that was really cool about their speech, and also about another workshop I went to, where it was three actors who were in uh, The Music Man and in Company, and they talked about when they were just starting out compared to where they are now. And we got to watch them deliver, like, audition cuts of songs in their repertoire. And then they talked about why they made those choices. And they had a lot of physical control and vocal control. And they knew about, you know, if you've got to do a smaller cut, you know where to cut. And it was it was just impressive seeing, like, real professionals do something that you rarely get to see anyone do. And is usually something that you only talk about in school. But then not only do you, you only get to talk about it in school, you almost kind of wonder, you know, do people actually, you know, care about this stuff? And then you see professionals able to do it all. And then you realize, oh, yeah, they really do. Cool. That was really cool. And it made me feel good. And you could tell that everyone who gave these workshops was really, like, taking them seriously. And they, they cared about, you know, putting on a good uh, 30 minutes to an hour of, of these teachers' time. So they would go back and be able to share this with their students. That actually does sound really cool. What were were uh, your thoughts on the shows you saw, or do you not want to be on the record for those? No, I mean it's like fine. I think the play that goes wrong was fantastic. Um, I would see it again. I I would I would probably go back and see it again and kind of look at it more critically. I actually did like Moulin Rouge. That was the one that I was a little bit like hesitant about. And is Aaron Teviot still there? I don't think it was him. It was okay. somebody else. Um, I mean, it's Aaron Aaron Veit, I believe. Yeah, we don't we don't. Unless I'm confusing him with the silent film star. It was fun. It was a little weird because we were there. It was like a matinee on like a Tuesday, and I think <laughs> they and the crowd were a little bit sleepy, 
and it is a very audience interaction yeah i know i saw it here show oh well yeah so that show is really weird if people are tired but I enjoyed more than I thought I would, just, like, recognizing I, songs and, and bopping around. I have around. a weird take on that. You've seen the movie, right? Yeah. Yeah, I have a weird take on it with Adaptation, which is that it removes the Like a Virgin scene, which I feel like is one of the most iconic scenes of Moulin Rouge, uh, and replaces it with Chandelier, which I kind of get. I imagine that Madonna's just expensive, and that's why. But my other, like, major note of Adaptation that I just don't understand is changing the Roxanne tango to a solo instead of a duet. When I saw it, it just really irked me because the reason that song rules so much in the original is that you've got this seemingly like side character who never gets a solo just come in and completely kill the song while Ian McGregor moans about how like his love is going to go away. But in the play, it's just whoever's playing Christian, you know, sings the whole thing. And it's like, well, I don't It's just a weird adaptation choice to me. I, it's ex- like the dancing's great, obviously, and the singing's good, but it's like, I don't think this works as well. Well, I just think also in general, Moulin Rouge, you know, that movie is just so about the editing and like how hyper over edited it is that you can try to replace that spectacle on stage. But to me, it just never fully got to the level of energy of the movie. I really like Moulin Rouge, the movie. I thought it on stage was fine. I actually don't really care much for the movie. I mean, I I could like rewatch it and then go into it, which I haven't in a whole lot of time. But I like the musical, um, and I see what you're saying about the changes, but I really, I really thought that, I mean, it all, it all clicked together for me. I didn't feel like I was missing anything, and uh, the things that I was paying attention for, like the can-can, and then Roxanne, and everything else was just kind of like, oh, this is gonna happen now, and here we go. Well, but I just told you Roxanne was bad! Cancelled. I know. I was wrong, and now you've you've set me straight. But yeah, how dare I, you? Oh, here's you know that clip of Aaron Vite where he like hits that high note. Oh, I um, mean, I totally butchered his name earlier when I said his name. Okay, go yeah. on, <laughs> go on. Yeah. Well, I mean, maybe I did too. That's why I'm like the guy that played the somnambulist in the Cabinet of Dr. Caligari, and I'm wondering if I'm just replacing it with that. Anyway, I know the guy that shot that video that was going around TikTok. Um, oh, I'm sure. He posted sure. it on his it... story. I, I, do I um, know the same guy, too? <laughs> no, you don't, actually. Okay, but, whatever um, you said, I just no. assume it's our mutual friend. <laughs> no, no, yeah. no. I mean, I know, a few, I know a few people who shoot video for the shows. I also saw Funny Girl. Oh, yeah. Funny Girl, was, Funny Girl was very fun. People really undersold Funny Girl to me. You know, people and... I know who've seen it have told me that, like, I don't know who you saw. I've heard people say Billy, Beanie Feldstein is actually really good in it. Like... She's really funny in it. I don't know if you saw her, if you saw the uh, the alternate, because I know there's an alternate. No, we saw we saw Beanie, as of course everyone refers to her, and I really liked her. Um, I had a really enjoyable time. I mean, it's just it's it's kind of slow at some points, and it's one of those things is like, uh, you know, it's not, maybe it's not my thing because of pacing. That you can do what you can do. I had a good time at Funny Girl. Now uh, what's now what's going on in your life? Now I'll just be very brief about it. I'm very. So I'm going to uh, Cedar Point this weekend, and I'm really excited for it. And I was thinking, you know what would be really cool is if on the way back, I stop at the Indiana State Museum IMAX, which is like a two-hour detour, so it's still a detour, but it's like, be worth it, because I thought they had nope in 1.43 aspect ratio. However, what I found out is they have not yet upgraded their IMAX to laser, which means that they can only show the 1.9 ratio which I can just see right like in Chicago. So to me, it's like, well, why would I even bother going there? Three hours to my trip when I can get the same aspect ratio right here. 
And before you go, because Mark right now is making one of his faces that's kind of confused, the place where you saw Nope has a laser IMAX, so you got the full 1.43 aspect ratio. I mean, I can, like, intuit what IMAX is, and I can definitely see it on screen, but I had to think about, like, it's, like, closer to 1.1, but, like, why would it be 1.9? Like, that's much closer to what I know is the anamorphic format, which has a 2 in it. Because so, like, why would they advertise what... that? Because that's what Limaxes are. At a certain point Limaxes. in time, when IMAX was in development, I don't know exactly when, they stopped being as strict as how big it had to be, and they're like, yeah, sure, you can use our branding to put it on there. And, you know, like, one of the best IMAX movies, I probably what I'd argue is the best IMAX movie to only use the 1-9 ratio, which was advertised as using IMAX cameras, even though it was digital IMAX cameras, is Mission Impossible Fallout. The entire, well, the Halo Jump is entirely an IMAX, and the entire third act of the helicopters is an IMAX. But since it's 1-9 aspect ratio, it won't fill an entire IMAX screen, but it will fill, like, the LIMAX that's by my workplace, you know? And that's, mm-hmm. like, usually what Marvel movies that nowadays are, like, filmed in... They say filmed in IMAX, but they were filmed with digital IMAX cameras. Digital IMAX cameras can only get the 1-9 aspect ratio, which is why a lot of IMAXs are, like, now the digital file is only 1.9 that they send out the studios. Like, if you have a laser, yeah, we'll give you the 1.43, but otherwise we're not going to bother specifically checking if this will actually fit your screen, you know? Uh, In your experience, does the IMAX showing also imply that it's going to have, like, the wall of seats? No. <laughs> like, like, to be very honest, no. Um, Navy Pier's IMAX kind of had that when it was still open. I saw three movies at Navy Pier IMAX. Only three, and only one of them had the 1.43 aspect ratio, and it was First Man, which only has it for three minutes when he's on the moon at the end. I hate to be like, oh, COVID sucks because of what it did to my movie going, because, like, obviously <laughs> that is not, like, a top 100 priority with why COVID sucks, but literally, 2020, on the slate for 2020, was in real IMAX, was going to be Tenet. Wonder Woman 84, which I know a lot of people don't like. Dune, I believe, was originally scheduled for that, and, uh... No Time to Die. Three of those shot with IMAX film cameras. In Dune, even though it's digital, he, like, cropped it to 143, even though it came in at 19. He's like, no, I want this to look good in, like, a full IMAX. So, like, if Navy Pier hadn't closed because of COVID, I would have seen all those in real IMAX, and I would see Nope in real IMAX, and we'd just be down the road. The other two movies, by the way, besides First Man, I saw at the real IMAX for... Th- these other two are really good, though, too, even though they weren't real IMAX. I saw Free Solo there. The documentary about, you know, free souling, uh, I can't remember the name of it, mm-hmm. about it. and, uh, Apocalypse Now Redux. <laughs> oh, <laughs> so, yeah. Apocalypse Now, that was cool. Actually, so when I'm visiting. You saw that in real IMAX? Yeah, but was it wasn't like 143. It was like, there were, you know how, you saw Nope, right? There are moments in that movie, I presume, I, mean, I know it's only 48 minutes that were shot in real IMAX, so like, you know, you got the black bars for the rest of it, so that's what it was like when I saw Apocalypse Now. When I'm in New York, it's long because I heard Lincoln Square is actually getting the screen replaced. So hopefully it's not the week I'm there because it's supposed to be in August. But if oh, your screen wow. is not getting replaced, I do plan to go see ET at the IMAX you saw Nope at because that's the week of the ET IMAX re-release. And like I know it's the biggest IMAX in the U.S. So even if ET is not shot at IMAX, it's going to look really good on that screen. You know, now hearing you talk about that, I'm like, man, how many like actual IMAX movies have I seen or like would have known they were in IMAX? Because like, did I see Transformers 5 in IMAX when it had all those aspect ratios? I mean, if you're curious, I can look up right now what all the 143 aspect ratio films are because it's very, it's a very small list of films. That's why everyone was shocked when like, nope, was like, yeah, we actually got this. 
Because everyone's like, what? Well, really, the thing about watching Nope was being in the theater and the screen being so big and the seats being so piled on top of each other that it felt like you were going to, like, fall into the screen, which Mm. was fantastic for that movie. And that's why I told you after I saw it, I want to see it again, but in, like, a normal theater, because that was so much part of my experience of seeing Nope was the feeling of, it's, like, a feeling of, like, weightlessness watching it. You know, no no Nope spoilers, but it it does have some spectacle in it. I mean, I do think there are moments in Nope where I watched it, and I could tell this was a scene that was cropped from an IMAX print. And, like, the cinematography still looked good, but it was, like... Oh, only the tip of Daniel Kluis' head is in this frame. This must be much wider when it's like I must actually see like the his head in like the full IMAX, you know? The way this movie was filmed is very interesting, but we probably can't talk about it for like 2 months. All right. Well, like what that. I will say right now, well, my hope is that everyone should go see Nope. Yeah, what my hope is is that controversially cuz obviously I live here in Chicago where we get so many millimeter prints even if we don't have IMAX. Uh, I know the music box kept asking for a Nope print. And they were turned down. And I thought initially it was just because, oh, Universal's being dumb. But then I heard, like, some gossip from people in the industry, so I don't know if it's true or not, that it was literally getting visual effects finished up on Monday morning. Like, before the movie came out. So I'm like, oh, okay, in that case, they can't really make a print. Because that's a long process. So my hope is, maybe Halloween this year or next year, we get a 70mm print of Nope just screening here as a repertory thing. Because I'd love to still see it on that format. All right. We can go into our games, but I do want to just list, because I have them open, the uh, IMAX 143 films. The Dark Knight is the first one. Transformers Revenge of the Fallen is one. And actually, fun fact, Transformers Revenge of the Fallen has a extra 30 seconds in the movie in the IMAX cut. Because they're like IMAX shots. Tron Legacy had 1.78, which is very unconventional. But it's it's not 1.9, so I figure that's worth mentioning. Of course, the most famous one is uh, that isn't a Nolan film is Ghost Protocol, which we will actually eventually talk on this podcast about. Dark Knight Rises, which I might hold the record for most, not percentage-wise, but most minutes. It's 72 minutes of the film are shot in that aspect ratio. Star Trek Into Darkness... Hunger Games actually is my favorite IMAX movie. Uh, I know that's a weird thing to say that I've You're seen. You're Hunger... Okay, wait. Catching Stop Fire. Everything. Catching Fire. It's Catching Fire. Sorry. All right. Explain. Okay. So, I don't know how Nope does it, but I've seen The Dark Knight Rises, and that was the only other one I'd seen... And Mission Impossible. Mission Impossible only does it for a couple of the action scenes, so that's fine. The thing that's really annoying about The Dark Knight Rises is Nolan will just shoot, like, the establishing shot inside the mansion, right? Inside Wayne Manor with an IMAX camera. And then we'll cut to a a shot reverse shot of Alfred and Bruce talking for a bit. And then we'll cut back to an IMAX shot from afar that's, like, they can, but they're still talking. Because it's like, he's like, I want to have the most IMAX in this movie as possible, even if it's, like, I'm cutting between these aspect ratios weird. And I feel like that's the truth of a lot of IMAX movies, where it's like, we want the establishing shot to look really IMAX, and then we're going to cut to, like, some close-ups that are not in IMAX. So, Catching Fire, the first hour and a half are not in IMAX. But then as soon as she goes into the arena, the screen expands to the full IMAX ratio, for the entire sequel, like the entire 50 minutes she's in the Hunger Games. And then the last scene isn't an IMAX anymore. There's no cutaways to it. Even, even when we cut, you've seen Catching Fire, right? Like, way, I know not recently, but you've no, seen it. No, I right? haven't actually. Well, it's okay. So it's a Hunger Games movie. So not all, like, we're going to cut back to the people not in the arena, right? Those scenes are also mm-hmm. shot in IMAX. It's not, 
We're not cutting back and forth between the aspect ratio once we get to the huge aspect ratio. And I really like that about it. Interstellar has 66 minutes on it in IMAX ratio. Force Awakens has just the Millennium Falcon escape from Jakku. Batman v Superman apparently has it. Ah, I didn't see it in IMAX. And then obviously, Dunkirk obviously percentage-wise is way higher than The Dark Knight. Because Dunkirk is a way shorter movie. Uh, now I'm curious, uh, Dunkirk... Man, you should have like sent me this list. This would be like the perfect thing for me to like game use as list? my game. And, uh, and well, now I, you can I look this up to. later in like a couple episodes and see what I and forget. And quiz you about it. Well, yeah. Yeah, we'll see. Yeah, so, okay, so Dunkirk is 77 minutes, so it is longer than The Dark Knight Rises. Oh, First Man, obviously. And then... Tenet. And as I said, Tenet, Wonder Woman 84, No Time to Die, and now Nope. Can I try to do a possibly bad layman's explanation of these aspect ratios? And you can tell me if I'm uh, wrong. Yes, but I do have one other last fun fact. Sorry, I forgot one ever okay. 1.43 aspect ratio movie, which is Lightyear. Because <laughs> it's the first animated movie where they animated in the aspect ratio shift. You could really tell. Um, <laughs> Like, way back when, um, like, silent movies have that kind of boxy shape because they were shot in 3-4, and then we moved to widescreen, which I believe is one point, it's 1 by 1.75, and that's where we get the things, like, if you export a video and it says, like, 16 by 9. Well, 16 by by 9 is normally what your TV is. Then there's also 70 millimeter, which is how they shot Lawrence of Arabia, but that's its own thing. Whoa. It does refer to the size of the film, but you might... You know what aspect ratio 70 millimeter is? Uh, I can't remember off the top of my head, but I have this wonderful thing on my thing called uh, Google. Uh, it's 2.21. None of you know this. 2.21. When normally it's 2.351 for um, 35 millimeter prints. Um, and that's also a very like large format film. I believe 2001 um, is also shot in that format. Yeah, and, th- and then you have Anamorphic, which is like the super wide... That's like what you nope think of. Nope has when a weird aspect ratio. Wise. Not like besides obviously the IMAX stuff, but it has a weird aspect ratio outside of the IMAX stuff. Yeah, Nope yeah, is shot in two point that. two. That's also why I want to see it because I think that Nope, you really, it's more jarring than other things to me when it went from like you know IMAX shots to not IMAX shots. It's so it's so stark. But I mean, they also, I mean, they use it for like dialogue scenes, and I get that. I think in the when I saw the Force Awakens in theaters because I don't think I ever saw it in IMAX. But I knew they shot, because they were talking about this specific sequence of shot at IMAX. And I could tell the difference in a normal theater just because the film fidelity is so much higher that I could tell even on the DCP that like, oh yeah, I can see like Ray's sweat way more in these shots than I could in any uh, anything else in this movie. <laughs> like, Well, and then just so IMAX is going back to 3-4 but it's larger film. So the size of the film does matter, not just in like the resolution, like the film grain resolution is obviously part of what makes the image so stunning. You know, I I truly don't remember, but I mean, there's all this math that goes into like how a camera works and captures an image. And that's why I chose Lawrence of Arabia as like a 70 millimeter example versus 2001, because when you see like the desert shot in desert, desert filming in Lawrence of Arabia, you can really tell that it like looks unlike the way you film it in another way. I will say everyone who says they even remotely like movies needs to see Lawrence of Arabia on 70mm at some point in their life. I've done it twice, and the thing was, the first time I was like, yeah, that was really great, and the second time, which just a couple weeks ago, I did it, and I was like, yeah, this is like, (laughs) I understand why people call this like the greatest of all time type of thing, you know? Like, yeah. 
And I think Lawrence of Arabia has that too, where it will do, I don't know if it's like a lighting thing or whatever, but aren't the scenes with like Alec Guinness or whatever, those those look kind of weird, right? Like they look a little more stagey? I guess. I mean, they don't obviously look as epic as the exterior shots on the desert. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Anyway. All right. So before we recorded, Mark Mark decided to try something new. Well, I'm just going to say we're not giving up on the random generator thing. For the letterbox game, Mark gave me random numbers. So, Mark, give me the random numbers again, even though I already have them listed up, just so people have them for the record, and then they, I will explain the letterbox that, game they to have new proof listeners. that it was random. I gave Danny the numbers uh, 3, 7, and 9. All right. So, I have those numbers. The letterbox game is a game where I put in 10 films I have seen at some point in the last month. Uh, and then Letterbox is added a feature where it says what is the most algorithmically similar film to the film you just watched. So what this game is, I give Mark five the top five films, and he has to guess what movie it is. Uh, if there's a film by the same director or in the same franchise, I do not say it. And if he gets two guesses wrong, I'll give him the year. And then after that, he gets two more guesses with added films to help it a little easier. But if he can't get it with seven movies, he loses. So, you ready for your first movie? Yes, I am. All right. Your five films are Rocket Man. Walk the Line, Ray, Beyond the Sea, Respect. All right, so all musical biopics. I'm going to guess 2000s, and I have to think of what you've been up to lately in the past week <laughs> Yeah, or so. that is the rule of the game, really. <laughs> <laughs> well, I'll just, I'll throw out A Star is Born. Star is Born, the new one. I will tell you right now, is not it, but the remake, you said? Well, remake. the remake with Lady Gaga. Yeah, um, it is not in here. However, it is... Well, I'm not going to give it to you in the, the top... It's the number nine most related film to the movie we're talking about. Do you think that list really works like, oh, Rocket Man is, is truly the most like this movie, and then it becomes less like that movie? Or do you think there's something else going on? Uh, I think it also, you know, has to be probably with a letterbox popularity. Uh, was it Cadillac Records? Cadillac Records, it is not, but Cadillac Records is in the top 20, so have a good guess. All right, you get the year now. I think this is going to help you a ton. The year of this film's release is 2022. Uh, Well, I mean, maybe if I were aware of what's going on in the world right now. You're going to feel dumb if you don't get it. I'll just put it that way. (laughs) You had to remind me that Nope was coming out like two episodes ago i'm i'm not up i'm not with it um uh, musicals that came out now um this is probably not what it is but is it eurovision no before i give you the next hint can i push back on what you're saying right now because i want to point out for the record I'm not a sure few what weeks I ago i was kind of like filling time a few on. weeks ago mark got mad at me for saying that Inside Lou and David was a musical. I have only listed, outside of, out of the five movies I've said so far, Rocket Man is the only one of these that are musicals. The other ones are all musician biopics that happen to have music in them. There's more of a discussion to be had there, and I think we kind of had a little bit of it, but I don't know if we really, like, got past the surface level of that discussion. Well, do but you that... want your sixth movie? Yes. Well, sixth one is Bohemian Rhapsody, so it doesn't help you that much, I feel like. Truly, none. I don't think any of them will at this point, because <laughs> it's... Uh, I don't even like... 
I know that Hallelujah, the Leonard Cohen doc, just came out. Is that your guess? Yes, that's my guess. No, well, you're wrong. Uh, and also, can I just say, I love the trailer for that movie, because I got it when I saw Crimes of the Future, and I leaned over to my friend, and I was just like, hey, <laughs> I hope this movie mentions Shrek. And then literally the next thing in the trailer is the talking head, like, doc interview is like, and then we have to talk about Shrek. <laughs> all right so now i'll give you your seventh movie and then after that i'll recap all seven for the listeners at home if they somehow haven't got it yet but the last movie you get is i think you have more faith than the listener at home i do i have more faith than i think they have it it's dream girls though so the seven films are rocket man walk the line ray beyond the sea respect bohemian rhapsody and dream girls so this is your final guess the people versus billy holiday that's in the top 25. So, but that's not it. All right. Very, I'm going to lead into this in a way that's going to make you feel even dumber. So, right. there is a film in the top 25. I did have, well, that is from the same director of this movie. A movie that I, the movie I had to remove was recently adapted into a Broadway musical, which you saw in the past week. Uh, that's Moulin Rouge. And this is when I went to go see Baz Luhrmann's Elvis. Oh. Okay. <laughs> How was Elvis? I really liked the first half, and then I got a headache in the second half, so I thought it was because the movie was overwhelming, because that's just how Baz Luhrmann directs. But then I found out a day later I had COVID. (laughs) So it's like, well, can I really blame it on the movie then, you know? Like, I will say, I think about Elvis that I feel like people are really under... I think, great Tom Hanks performance. People love you. It's very divisive. I think it's a performance that every Tom Hanks had in him, and I'm really glad it exists. Because we're stacking episodes, you're using movies from, like, the entire past month, right? Yes. So, Elvis okay. is literally from, like, June 26th. Because now I remember when we're you are on July 26th. And yeah. you said your quote about Elvis was, this movie can be summed up with the line, that boy is gonna sing these Christmas carols. No, 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 I'll do the exact line. <laughs> you will sing the Santa Claus songs. <laughs> Is that Tom Hanks? Yes, that's Tom Hanks' voice in this whole movie. All right, next film. A chorus line. Nine. I know it. What is it? All that jazz. Yeah, you're right. The other two are Rocket Man, Moulin Rouge, and Greatest Showman. I would have to remove the Fosse Verdun miniseries because I considered that. Yeah. Sorry to the listeners at home. I should have let that play out, but we had like a multi-day text back and forth about how much you liked all that jazz. All right, your final one. Hereditary, the haunting of Hill House miniseries, because Leatherbox works like that. It Chapter Two, Malignant, great film by the way, and The Shining. You really knocked out a lot of directors that I was gonna lean on for guesses here. Was it John Carpenter's The Mist? And it is not in the top twenty-five. Maybe there's a through line of like being trapped in a house uh I, I guess i don't know have you seen it chapter two or malignant um, i don't necessarily evil think dead it. two nope and evil dead two is also not in the top 25 the year is 2019 okay so it's not the evil dead two yeah i, I said nope ah okay not evil dead two and i also said evil dead two oh is my not gosh in the was it 25. nope no, wait, it came out in 2019. All Do right. you want to have Nope be your guess after no. I said it was year 2019? <laughs> hey, man, it's improv. There is no past. There is no future. There is only the present and saying yes and. Okay. 
the big thing that came out in 2019 that's like a movie experience I remember was going to see um, Once Upon a Time in Hollywood with the people I was working an acting gig with. And I don't, I feel like, I mean, there's some kind of horror movie came out and we all went and saw it, but I feel like that was like Annabelle 4, not Ari Aster, not James Wan. Not Mike Flanagan because of Haunting of Hell House. Here, well, here's the thing about Haunting of Hell House, which we said that was funny, is that I was like, so you can rule out the Mike Flanagan 2019 movie, but I remembered the Mike Flanagan 2019 movie is Dr. Sleep, and I have this, I, I said The Shining, so like, that doesn't help you either, because they would have been gone anyway. <laughs> you you found a better guess for me. I'm being very upfront about it, though, so yeah, I'm not really yeah. being tricky about it. Well, I'm, I'm, maybe my guess should be Annabelle 4. Is that your guess? Annabelle? No. There is yeah, no Annabelle. Well, wait. It, it is, because Malignant gonna, is oh, wait, 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 wait. not the same... I'm not going to let you guess that, because there's only three Annabelle movies. So, if you want to guess Annabelle 3, <laughs> be my guest, but there is not, there's only, you cannot guess Annabelle 4, because the film does not exist. <laughs> Do you want to guess Annabelle Man, 3? I... Is that your guess? Yeah, okay. sure. Annabelle Comes Home, that's Annabelle 3, is not on this list and is not in the top 25. This next film, the sixth film I'll give you, is The Cabin in the Woods. More movies about houses that came out in 2019. Okay. The Snowman. <laughs> the Michael Fassbender film? <laughs> yeah, I'm sure they were in a house at some point. <laughs> nope, it is not The Snowman, and The Snowman is not in the top 25. All right, so I'll give you the seventh film, then I'll read them all out to the listeners at home. Who I, again, trust they might have got this weight before you. (laughs) These films are, uh, the last movie is The Ring. And to recap on the seven movies, it is Hereditary, The Haunting of Hill House miniseries, It Chapter 2, Malignant, The Shining, The Cabin in the Woods, and The Ring. Was it creepy, the Kyoshi Kurosawa movie? Is that your final answer? Because it is your final answer. Nope. And now, Mark, this is the part where I reveal that, one, you were so close to getting at one point, then you backed off. And also that I have been taunting you this whole time. Because the number one film related to this movie is Get Out, which I had to remove because it's from the same director as Us. Oh, (laughs) no. And yes, every time you guessed, I said nope. Very specifically, because oh, man. It is I totally forgot Jordan. when Us came out. <laughs> and the thing is, Us does have like a 30-minute portion where it is just a home invasion movie. So I was like, you are getting there. Yes, it does. It 100% does. I just rewatched it. <laughs> no, no, no. I mean, I mean, you're right. I'm, I'm agreeing with you. I'm shaking my head at myself because it's like... And also, nope. I just kept saying, nope, literally every time I guessed, you guessed, mm-hmm. and you did catch on to it. And you're like, oh, all right, it can't be nope then, so I'll just move on. <laughs> I mean, for me, for me now, it, you know, it, I need to rewatch them, but it, it probably goes get out, nope, us, for me. I feel like, uh, same. So... My game might need to be renamed because it's been the game of lists and that's still true, but I'm thinking about changing it to something like by the numbers or, or something like that. Because I, mean, I sure, I kind of like how list. we played it last week. That was fun, but I can also do some classic lists. No, um, we're never doing that again. <laughs> we're going... <laughs> no, no, no. We're going... We're, we're diving into the way we played it last week. Okay. Which is... 
it's more about the list than like you know where do you think these these people go so there's a website called the numbers which collects data i'm sure you might know it danny i'm there um, i'm a box officer i know what it is but i'm sure you have to explain for the listeners <laughs> all right all right so the numbers is this site that collects box office data it also collects information about actors salaries and has all these cross-reference lists about like most like samuel l jackson is one of the highest grossing actors of all time yeah of he's, course he's a marvel and yeah. star wars he's gonna be on there with some of these lists, like there's this list, like highest grossing actor of all time does not mean that you're actually paid more than other people, but it means that you're in some of the most bankable yeah. movies ever made. So Frank Welker is the voice of the dog Zero in The Nightmare Before Christmas, which we're going to talk about this episode. Frank Welker is the third highest grossing actor in any category of all time. And I believe he's just above John Ratzenberger, who will come up a lot on this podcast because he's the voice of Ham the Pig and a lot of other people. So okay. we're talking about this list of the highest grossing actors. Okay. First question, who is at the top of this list? I Didn't you just say it was Samuel L. Jackson? No, he's one of the highest grossing actors. But oh, so he's not number mind, one. He's not number one. I think Samuel. This is this is not related to the list I'm talking about right now. But I think like if you like highest grossing lead actors, I think Samuel L. Jackson might be it. I don't know. He's he's really high on one of the lists. But this is the list of highest grossing actors in any category. So you have people like voiceover actors like Frank Welker and John Ratzenberger, along with you know supporting leads, any kind of actors. That's this oh, list. Oh, this is tough. Actually, this is a really tough question. I'm gonna go with another voice actor jim Cummings. you're not going to get it okay not by doing that not by okay uh jk nope, simmons you think think of a dumb answer a dumb answer that doesn't really frank oz that's a that's actually a good dumb answer but it's not correct i'm trying to think if there's in... any i'm trying to think of anyone who's like in the marvel movies in a really dumb role but it's in a lot of them you know what i mean maybe that will get I me mean, there you're you're pretty much saying it right now stanley Right? Yeah, it's Stanley. <laughs> Stanley is the highest-grossing actor of all time, according to yeah. This that that list. makes a lot of sense, honestly. <laughs> yeah, I like going on the like talk pages about these Wikipedia articles. So you go in, and that is a lot of what the discussion is about, because this list is so dumb. Yeah. So, okay, that makes sense though. At the end of Endgame, all of the original Avengers have their signatures yes. appear on screen with their credits. Now, a lot of these actors are also among the top grossing actors of all time. There are two who are not. Who are they? There are two of them who don't get solo movies. Okay, there are three of them who don't get solo movies. But the other one is Scarlett Johansson, who's like very like in big movies anyway. So I'm going to go with Mark Ruffalo and Jeremy Renner. Okay. <laughs> what? It's just funny. Um, you got Mark Ruffalo. Okay. Jeremy Renner is among the highest grossing actors really? of all time. <laughs> yes. I guess the Mission Impossible movies kind of push him He sneaks in at bit. number 20. Yeah. Then, uh, so you, I'll just give you one more. Try to think who's the other one. I feel like Evans is more successful than Hemsworth, so I'll go with Hemsworth. Correct. Okay. Yeah, Hem it's Mark Ruffalo and Chris Hemsworth. This, this question arose out of me finding Jeremy Redder as number 20 <laughs> in the top 20 and being like, all right, wait a second. I'm curious, like, though, because I, I feel here? like Hemsworth will definitely overtake him at some point, you know? So I'm curious how close Hemsworth is. I'm sure that list is not updated with the new Thor, and also, like, Hemsworth is doing the new Mad Max movie, because Hemsworth does big—he doesn't do small movies like Renner does, or TV like Renner does, you know? 
So I'm sure he yeah. will eventually overtake. You know, I assume RDJ is the highest play. of the six Avengers, or is it yes. ScarJo? ScarJo is a higher grossing actor, but Robert Downey Jr. is the person on this list who has received the highest salary for a single production for a movie. Which movie was that? So it's not like Infinity War and Endgame getting like combined. Correct. I'm gonna just go with Endgame then, because I'm sure he got back end points on it. Or is it Civil War? I feel like it's either it Endgame Civil or Civil War. War. Because yes, I know I got I paid a lot for Civil War. It was forty million. If you want me to get on my Marvel uh, history box here, was that the fun thing story about Civil War is it is what directly caused an entire internal shift on how Marvel Studios operated under Disney. Because originally Marvel Studios just had to answer to the head of Marvel, who was Ike Perlmutter, who's like a Trump donor now, and he's a notorious penny pincher. He like said infamously, well, Terrence Howard's asking for more money. Just replace him. All the black people look the same. He single-handedly stopped Black Panther and Captain Marvel from being made until when they were. Because he's like, no one's going to want that. He stopped there from being a female villain in Iron Man 3 because you can't sell action figures of a female villain. But the straw that broke the camel's back was RDJ was like, if you want me in this Captain America movie, I'd be happy to do it, but you need to pay me $40 million, you know, because this is not part of my original contract. And he was like, well, if he wants that, just recast him. <laughs> that's what made Kevin Feige go like, no, <laughs> I'm going to go talk to the Bob Iger and get this restructured so I don't need to answer to this guy who's telling me to fire Robert Downey Jr. from being Iron Man <laughs> to save money. <laughs> like, <laughs> I mean, it's what, the, it's what they always said. The white dudes have to hold each other accountable, otherwise nothing gets done. I think it did in turn, weirdly enough, Rory J saying, no, I want to get paid what I'm worth did lead indirectly to Black Panther and Captain Marvel finally getting made, so whatever. Well, sort of. Yeah, you know, sort of. <laughs> I didn't know all of that about Civil War. I I did know that it was, like, a big deal because of the salaries, but I didn't know that it was all connected to this, like, Trump donor pulling the strings or something. Yeah, um, the other thing that's funny about him is that, I feel like it's funny about that era, is that, you know, right afterwards, Marvel, like, gets a huge uptick in really high-profile casting, I feel like it's because of the, because, like, even just like a couple years prior, you know, like the villain of Age of Ultron is just played by, uh, I love James Spader, but let's not pretend he's an expensive actor, right? Civil War also doesn't really have an expensive villain, that's because the cast is being spent everywhere. But like, afterwards, Doctor Strange has the most insanely overqualified cast of any of these movies <laughs> right after Civil War, you know? Oh, yeah, yeah. It's Mads I mean, Mikkelsen, who is probably not, Mads again, Mikkelsen. not super expensive. But when you combine them with, like, Michael Stuhlberg getting a role, uh, Rachel McAdams playing a thankless role, Benjamin Bratt having a side role, like, the cast is just stacked throughout. There's no, like, minor character actors popping up like they are in the earlier Marvel movies. It's all big names. I don't know if I'm following you. Do you are you saying because Robert Downey Jr. chose such a high salary, you're saying that it actually encouraged them to hire more people? Well, no, with, like, it, it, it allowed Kevin Feige... To go work directly under Disney where they're like, they value him more than the Marvel head did, you know? So, like, and they're like, yeah, sure, you want that, Kevin? Go ahead. You just made us another $400 million of Avengers. Why not? You know, like, all right, enough Marvel talk. Okay. Oh, we have to do my favorite intro part that we haven't written in yet. A detour! Detour. Do you want it to be like a car screeching? I downloaded yeah. that sound the other yeah, day. Yeah, that works. And I, yeah, okay. So, last week we covered Toy Story 1. After Toy Story 1, a stop-motion movie is released. James and the Giant Peach. And since I was unaware of this, we are also doubling back and doing a Henry Selleck double feature with The Night Before Christmas because 
Joe Ramped. What would you say is like the fourth member of the Beatles? I feel like there's always like someone who says, "Oh yeah, they're the fourth member." You know, like <laughs> the fourth member of the Beatles is Ringo. You mean the fifth member of the Beatles? Who <laughs> was the fifth member of the Beatles? <laughs> it's usually one of the managers, either Brian Epstein or George Martin. What the, the extra the guy, one? You know what I mean? Yeah. Like people say the original three Pixar franchise, and then there's the fourth Ranger who people forget about, which is Joe Ramft, <laughs> because he never directed a film on his own, and Joe Ramft was the storyboard director for both Nightmare Before Christmas and James and the Giant Peach, which allows us to talk about stop motion a bit, I guess Tim Burton a bit if we want. I don't know. We're going to talk probably, well, well, we'll talk about them as a, I feel like we can talk about them as a combined experience, right? We don't need to be like, all right, now we're talking about Nightmare Before Christmas, and all right, now we're talking about James and the Giant Peach. Because I feel like these films, even though obviously Nightmare Before Christmas has more of a legacy today, in my childhood, these films are very conflated with each other. It's funny that that is your estimation of it, because... I had never seen either one of these movies before watching them for this show, but Mm -hmm. I did know that James and the Giant Peach relatively recently was adapted into a musical with lyrics and music by Pasek and Paul, along with the music and lyrics that were in the movie. So it's like you have Pasek and Paul plus Randy Newman, and what kind of like a strange brew is that? But I know of it as like a musical junior product, and I think it's perfect for that. But I thought about it that way. When I was very little, I read James and the Giant Peach because I had a rolled doll collection. And I don't think I read much of it because the rhinoceros in the beginning scared me. And when the movie came out, or when I was aware of the movie, I had no interest in it because I thought that it was really scary. And so that's why I just never watched it until <clears throat> you told me that Joe Ranf was involved. And with Nightmare Before Christmas, I also was aware of it, but I wasn't really interested in it because I'm I surprised thought... you've never seen Nightmare Before Christmas. Honestly, that's the one that I... really shocks me that no one has ever shown it to you. Well, I think people have tried, but I've never been really into it. Apparently, wrongly, because now I actually think that Nightmare Before Christmas is really up there for me now with like Tim Burton, even well, though it's a Henry Selleck movie. Yeah, I, I always have to um, be like, well, I don't like. I listen to this podcast called Blank Check which is like they go over filmographies of directors. And I was talking to my friend Matt about how, you know, there's a new Henry Selleck movie coming out this year. And after watching both of these, I'd like them to do a Henry Selleck series because like, I think you can really like break down his movies and they'd be super interesting, you know? Cause I really like when they do animation because they, they did a series on Brad Bird and they did a series on Ron and John. I actually forget their last names, so I'm not going to say their last names, but they had a pretty great run from Great Mouse Detective. And then they do all the way up to Moana. You know, they're, they're always, a, they did Treasure Planet. Like, they do a bunch of weird stuff at Disney. But I think Henry Selleck would be such an interesting director to do. Because he has these, like, long gaps with, where he's just trying to get a project off the ground. And he has a movie coming out this year, actually, with Key and Peele. So I'm really excited to see a new Henry Selleck film, even though... I'll just say right now, I actually don't like either of these movies much at all. I don't really like Games of the Giant Peach or Nightmare Before Christmas. It's one that takes that get people really mad at me that I don't like Nightmare Before Christmas. But I think his movies always have a lot to talk about, even if I don't think they work. And I think he'd obviously be a good pick, because, like, again, how often does he have a new movie coming out, right? What was your perception of these movies before you watched them? I have seen these movies before, but I also didn't see him as a child. Uh, I would say the legacy of Nightmare Before Christmas and James the Giant Peach is actually exactly the same, which is that, um, you know, when you get the v- Disney VHS tape and they have all the commercials in front of it, uh, and you don't really care about getting the t- commercials for like Hunchback or Dom or for like Mulan, but when the James and the Giant Peach one or the Nightmare Before Christmas one comes on, you go, ooh, this is scary, and you fast forward it really quick. That is the perspective I have as a child toward these films, which is stop motion is creepy. Although, I think... 
I did like Wallace and Gromit when my dad showed me as a kid, so I think it's very much just, oh, this art style's creepy. And more so Nightmare Before Christmas than James and the Giant Peach. Because my parents outright were like, we are not letting you watch Nightmare Before Christmas for whatever reason. I don't know why. There are some movies like, my parents let me watch Harry Potter because they're like, ooh, it might make you want to become a witch. It's like, that's stupid. But I guess I get it from like the ultra like conservative Christian perspective. Sure. Nightmare Before Christmas is literally just like, Oh, it's like a Halloween special and a Christmas special crossover, you know? There is nothing that logically makes... I mean, it, there's, there are a couple dark jokes in it, but nothing. That, that, everything's going to go over kids' heads, you know? And it's just like... I think Nightmare Before Christmas is a better film than James and the Giant Peach, because at least Nightmare Before Christmas feels like... My opinion of Nightmare Before Christmas is it'd be a really great 50-minute movie, but unfortunately it's got that extra 25 minutes of padding. And I feel probably about the same about James and the Giant Peach, but the difference is at least Nightmare Before Christmas has the Christmas aesthetic. I also think... The music is way better in Nightmare Before Christmas, so, like, I can enjoy that more, too. I think James and the Giant Peach is more visually interesting, though. There are aspects of both these movies I like, but they just neither of them come together for me. But Yeah, I was thinking, we watched this after that Kevin talk was fresh in our minds when we mentioned how Toy Story, the editing is really impressive. And that really jumped out at me in Nightmare Before Christmas especially, because James and the Giant Peach is just so almost not a movie because of the way it's paced. But like... Nightmare Before Christmas could really benefit from some some snappiness. I was thinking especially at the end when they like fire the cannons at the sleigh. Why are, why are these more than like a few frames long? It um, is very much like we got to hit that 75 minute mark so we can actually put this in theaters, you know? Um Yeah, I mean there's so many there's so much people like walking from one spot to the next. Now usually Nightmare Before Christmas also the thing with Nightmare Before Christmas is like at least 50% of the movie is singing. There's so much song in it, and most of the music is good. It's either good or forgettable. Whereas James and the Giant Peach, I'd say, essentially every song in it is not good. <laughs> like, I'm just kind of like, oh my god, shut up, once they start singing. I think uh, I think the song they say when they're, like, eating the peach is catchy. I, I, have, one, I have one really harsh comment I want to make about James and the Giant Peach. Is, um, I try sure. not to attack child actors. I really... I think it's tough that children have to work in the industry, but this guy is 30 right now. I looked him up. He seems pretty well adjusted. I think it's really impressive when, you know, you have a child actor in a movie who appears in live action and in an animation. I feel like the stop motion animation is just more realistic acting all around than any time the live action character is on screen. Like, I'm like, wow, this guy might be like a decent voice actor if he like kept it up, but like... Uh, stay behind the, the recording, and that's that's no knock on well, voiceover. You know, I, I think mean, voiceover actors sure. are great. Uh, you don't really have the physical control as a kid to like match animation. Yeah, well, I mean, even just like when he's a kid, he's like, "Hi there, my name is James," and it's just like when he's like actually like voice doing just voiceover. <laughs> it's like you're way more that like, your voice is more expressive here than he's just like I'm sad. Also. So I watched James the Giant Peach in a theater. I just remember I laughed really hard when, like, I hope most people watching this are familiar with James and the Giant Peach, like the book at least. And there's mom- there's this moment in it where the the ants are like, you know, they have everyone over to look at the peach, right? And they're like, oh, look at the, uh, he's like, no, no, he's like, can I go play with the kiddos out here? I got all dressed up. And let's be real, that line's only in there because it's like, what's an easy animation model we can match to? All right. 
<laughs> let's, do, let's just have someone wants to dress up to go play with the kids. Whatever. And they're like, well, we got a present for you. It's garbage. And they hand him, like, the thing that, like, a trash picker-upper. I don't know what you call it. You know, like, it's just, like, a thing. The but I looked stick. at... The grabby stick? Or you mean the... Yeah, like, the grabby... Thing. Like, the... I don't I know. I think I was gra- making a sandwich. Yeah, I don't know. But anyway... Uh, <laughs> they handed it to him, but I looked at it and I was like, oh, this is so weird, the answer being nice. I thought they meant, like, a kid le- left, like, a baseball bat there, and they're just handing him a baseball bat to play with. I'm like, that's weird that they're being nice. That's- it's funny to me that your, like, stock street urchin voice is pretty much right on what the actual kid does. <laughs> that's what he sounds like. Close second favorite song is the first song in the movie where he just says, my name is James. It's so that That's bad. It's like <laughs> it's like one of those things where like, we have a cute kid here, so we're going to have him sing about how sad he is. And he's like, more night, Miss James. And, you know, because I, I, I don't remember much about this movie, but as soon as that song started, I didn't remember the song, but I remember the purpose of the song, which, just, which was just to be like, oh, this is how the spider will know his name. That makes sense. Like, that's the only reason the song is here, because he keeps going, my name's James, my name's James. And so the later spark can be like, Oh, I know your name. It's James. Like, I want to say my favorite song in James and the Giant Peach, which is the really the only moment when I saw it in the movie where I burst out laughing. It comes at the yeah. very end of the movie. It's just Randy Newman going like, I'm going to tell you the story about a boy who lived in a peach. And I'm just like, you know what I mean? Like, it is a very 90s, this is the plot of the movie song, but it's Randy Newman singing a, a roll doll story out to you. And as soon as it started, I just started laughing. I was just like, this is amazing. Randy Newman jokes are always great. Oh, okay, I looked up the song you're talking about. And you know what? It is kind of catchy, because as soon as I saw the title, I was like, oh yeah, I remember that one. Mm-hmm. It's like, that's the life for that, me. Um, I mean, to its credit, when I saw this, I thought, oh my gosh, Every one of these is like a dream role, and I think it's very smart that they adapted this theatrically, because like every part is like big and ridiculous and so much fun. So even if you're like singing about how you make food, or if you really want to sell the My Name is James song, I think you can in like a goofy musical. Well, yeah, I think again, Henry Selleck, interesting guy. think he's a better animation director than he is a live action director. I think all the staging and the animation is fine. And I said this earlier, I think this is a much more visually, like, splendor movie than Nightmare Before Christmas is. There are so many, like, cool bits of the animation, like the sharks, or, like, diving into the underwater, and it's just, like, this is stylistically so cool. And then, of course, I love the Roger Rabbit ending where we actually get the stop-motion characters in real life. I immediately buy into it. And even though you do kind of notice, they, they're careful to try to keep the shots, like keep it to a minimum where they actually have to share the frame with other people. But, like, it still looks good. Um, well, and those are also crane shots, too, which are difficult because of the parallax of those. If you wanted to, like, green screen something over, it would be funky. So I'm curious about how they did those. It's also my hot funny take when, remains- like... What? Sorry, oh, go on. Oh, just one no, more funny, go. ridiculous thing is when the grasshopper takes over watch for the centipede and the centipede falls asleep and then the grasshopper like immediately starts playing this really <laughs> loud song and singing yeah it's a nice moment again i like how it visually looks and it's like weirdly serene but i just i think james is just a really boring movie for a lot of it mainly because james is like i think both james and jack skellington are not great protagonists I'll be honest, Nightmare on Christmas, like, there's very, it's better. It's way better. Like, because you can kind of get where they're going with him. James is just a flat character who is kind of like, no, obviously in a roll doll book, I don't care because he's the audience surrogate. So it's just like, oh, he's a kid, you know? 
But in the movie, it's like, he's a kid who had perfect parents and he's a perfect child. But then now he's a not perfect aunt. So this poor perfect child doesn't have perfect friends. But now he has perfect friends who always tell him how good he is. But at the end, he finally learns to stand up to his aunts, which let's be real. The only reason he did it was because he was so perfect earlier. Right? Like, like that is the arc for James. It's just really boring. It's kind of like the thing, you know, when you grow up and it's like, you realize Charlie Bucket's kind of boring compared to the other kids. The difference is, is that, like, Charlie Bucket is, in the better adaptation of the novel, Willy Wonka as a character is so much, like, overpowering once he enters. And also, Grandpa Joe has such a big role in that movie, too, where he messes up Charlie, too, where it's like, I'm, of course, referring to the Gene Wilder one, to be clear, not the Tim Burton one. Yeah. That, like, it all works there. Because it's like, we spend enough time. And also, book uh, purists will be mad at this, but the movie does add the bit where Charlie does act up, at least. So, like, he is still more of a kid. That's kind of the issue of Roald Dahl books. Um, a lot of them are like, oh, it's the perfect child. I saw in the Wikipedia, because I was looking a bit at the James and Giant Peach production, is that Danny DeVito optioned this, but he went with Matilda instead. And Matilda kind of is, like, the perfect child narrative, but the difference is, is that, like, it has enough, she's mischievous enough that we like her, and, like, her parents are legitimately abusive. I want to revisit Matilda. I feel like Matilda's one of these movies that might really hold up. Whereas Jack, right, very understandable for, like, artists. He's a guy who's really successful at what he does, but he wants to try something different. But again, also, like, the tone of it is very much like, oh, it's a Halloween special and a Christmas special crossover, so it doesn't matter if these characters are flat anyway. The joy of Nightmare Before Christmas for me comes from, first of all, I avoided it because I thought there would be more Christmas in it. I, it's actually mostly goth throughout, it's, which It's an ideal to me. movie to watch, like, November 5th. Let's get into some Christmas, but let's still add a little Halloween hangover in there, you know? Yeah. yeah, so the fun is all of those wacky characters, but also watching this now, it's kind of like a feature-length Danny Elfman music video. No, yeah, like, that's the best aspect. That's incredible. Aspect of it. The best asset of it is just how good the music is. Like, what's this? Obviously, this is Halloween and what's this are the big ones. But I remember back when I first discovered, like, James and the Giant Peach. I don't know if I ever watched it all the way through until I still counted it as a rewatch. Because, you know, I've definitely seen all of it, just not all at one sitting before. But I hadn't seen it all the way through until I saw it at the music box earlier this week. But then Nightmare for Christmas, I'm pretty sure I was shown it. Someone made me watch it in high school, you know, like one of my friends. And I remember at the time, once I listened to it, I was like, you know, Kidnap the Santa Claus is a good track. <laughs> like, mm-hmm. a lot of great, really great tracks in it. I'm actually surprised in a sense that, like, you know, they've made a James and the Giant Peach stage show, and they haven't tried to make a Night Before Christmas show. I feel like... I don't think you could. James I mean, it's and not going to look as visually good, but... Well, I mean, even when I watched the movie, I was reminded that something existed, but you watch James and the Giant Peach, and you're like, how could, like, high school or, like, grade school people not put this on as a musical? This seems like it was that before it was made into a movie. Where Nightmare Before Christmas... Yeah, because it has all the padding that's just like, why is this here? Well, and Nightmare Before Christmas is much more about how bizarre the world is. To be clear, I don't mean like a children's theater I mean like Disney on Broadway Nightmare. Even so, I think like, I don't know, you could do it as a Beetlejuice thing, but what would your angle be, you know? The angle for Disney shows is to make money. Like, what's like... (laughs) Well, so, but let's, let's think about it as like... 
but how do you make money? Is it like effects? Is it a sing-along? Or is it like Beetlejuice, which is not Disney, but it's like if you get this really charismatic main actor, that's kind of what the show is. And you have a non-charismatic Jack. You have really difficult effects and interesting music, which would be like hard to sing along to. But I also think that like, I, I don't know, I'd be curious what the numbers are like, but I saw that this was listed as a cult classic and I think that it might still be that because there ah! isn't like no 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 but let me finish sorry, because there's sorry, not finish, there's yeah. not because beetlejuice and this this is difficult because i'm talking about demographics which are kind of not true in a lot of ways but beetlejuice has the real life characters and the wacky characters so you get the goths and the like normal people and both will come to see that movie and see like michael keaton's humor making friends of everyone i don't think that exists in nightmare before christmas it's 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 just a bizarre it's just a weird time which i really enjoy and a lot of people enjoy but i don't think there's much more in it except for how weird it is now i have to ask it's not family friendly yeah that's fair no that's fair and also i don't think disney really has an interest in exploring non-family friendly options although technically devil wears prada will end up being a disney because it's owned by fox but whatever all right, so I have a little, well, soon they little all will be. a little snub club crossover here with you, which is I want to do some Oscar trivia with you about Nightmare for Christmas because it is a groundbreaking film at the Oscars. Do you know? Can you guess why? It was only nominated for one Oscar, and it was a groundbreaking nomination. Was it nominated for Best Picture? No, <laughs> come on, dude. That's Beauty and the Beast. Beauty and the Beast was nominated for Best Picture as the first yeah, anime I... nominated for Best Picture. Oh, well, I thought that won, didn't it? I or will it say it was. It, no, no anime film has ever won Best Picture. Silence oh, okay. of the Lambs was that year, dude. Uh, so oh, well, then. I will say it is a first ever nominated animated film in one category, and this is the only category Number of Christmas was nominated in. Is it technical or acting? Technical. There is no acting visual nomination. Effects? Yeah, visual effects. Now. Okay. Here is the fun part. There are two other films that are wholly animated in history that have been nominated for visual effects. And then there's one that was partially animated that won visual effects. Can you name these three movies? I think the winner is pretty easy to guess. Uh, who like, framed Roger Rabbit? Yeah. yeah that, that one I think is a, okay. g- a gimme. And Nightmare Before Christmas, more. I said, is the first one. So there are two other fully animated movies. One okay. of these movies you might not consider fully animated, but it is a fully animated film. Why wouldn't I consider it fully animated? You will figure it out. I will oh, also man. give you the hint that all both of these movies came out in the last 10 years. <laughs> My brain is like light year. Um, <laughs> is, uh, is one of them one of those Irish movies? No. I, 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 can, answer your, I can answer your like hint questions here because it's not an official game. It's oh, it's not real, and that that means we can be loose. Semi casual, semi casual, yeah. I don't know if I'm gonna be able to get these actually. All right, well, I'm gonna t- I'm gonna first complain about a snub, in my opinion. 2020 was not a good year for visual effects. How did Soul not get a nomination? Or Wolf Walkers, the Irish movie. You know what I mean? Like Tenet is the only. I, I I'd have to open it up, but I feel like Tenet is probably the only deserved nomination that year of films that are nominated because they had a full slate of five. Uh, I guarantee I mean, you that Soul and Wolf Lockers look better than anything on there besides maybe Tenet in that lineup. I, I don't have it open. It seems kind of strange to me that visual effects is, like, l- kind of lumped in with animation. Because, like, I get it sometimes, but it's like, why wouldn't you nominate Soul? Because of, like, particle physics or whatever. But, like, other things Well, other places nominated more, Soul. Like... It really just missed at the Oscars. So that's why I was like, it's a bummer it missed because, like, oh, okay. Well, I... So this is just about, okay. 
Okay, yeah, I, I, I have the I have it open by the way. The other four nominations that year were Love and Monsters, The Midnight Sky, Mulan, and the one and only Ivan. And I don't blame it, listeners, for not knowing what any of these movies are besides Mulan. So, <laughs> like, my point is, Soul and Wolf Walkers both would have been gorgeous. And Soul obviously makes more sense because it is more of a computer based thing. All right, so the film that was being like it's fully animated, but they don't want you to think that is the Lion King remake. <laughs> Um, well, I never, I wouldn't have guessed that. I didn't think that was like noticed by the world. Obviously, had great visual effects. It just was a bad movie. But the other one is another stop motion film. Does that give you a guess at all? If I say it's stop motion in the last ten years, Coraline? No, close. It's Kubo and the Two Strings, which makes sense. That is a very visually beautiful movie. Uh, oh yeah, it is, and I remember liking it, and it has dropped out of my brain. Oh, I remember. I was disappointed by it. But it's kind of like that thing I remember, uh, I actually remember, uh, I think this was Julius's take, but maybe it was mine. Uh, one of us left the movie and was like, you know, that would be a really great movie to, like, play on mute with the score track. Because the dialogue in that movie ruined all the atmosphere that the animation was giving. I remember but anyway, back saying to- something like that at the time. And I think that's oh. how I felt, too, but it's been a while. To wrap up this uh, 1990, this game about Night Before Christmas being nominated for visual effects in 1993. <laughs> that's a good time. Please- Please, Chad, I'm just going to put it on, like, like that's the title card that would appear if this was an actual game show. What won the Oscar in 1993 for visual effects? This is a very easy answer. If you know classic films that released in 1993, it is the only real choice to win. In my opinion, it has better visual effects. 1993? Yeah, it has better visual effects than Night Before Christmas, in my opinion. 91 through 95 is kind of fuzzy for me. This is a film that if it did not win visual effects, people would call it one of the biggest Oscar snubs of all time. Oh, I will Jurassic, put it Jurassic Park. Yes. <laughs> like, okay. But anyway, okay. Back to these movies. I don't like them. Like, I'll be very honest. Like, I do not like these movies. Well, I'll just say I liked them more than I thought I would. And I probably, you know, now now when people say, let's put on a Halloween movie, I'm usually like, ah, not interested in the night before Nightmare Before Christmas. I would watch it now. So I think I think I've developed over the course of watching these films. I've gotten something. What about out of James them. and Giant Peach? If I, if anyone ever asks me to be in it, I was like you? the Pete Postlewaite character. I or, was gonna actually. I didn't want to mention him. I think he's great. He's the one part of the movie I really like. I love that they keep in the classic world doll thing. They're right here. You just finished reading this book. And the fact that this movie ends with, like, maybe this would be too cheesy. <laughs> I forgot that's how it ends. I that's wish it, I like, wish what, it, like, came going forward, like, d- like, dre- like, dressed like Henry Selleck in a sense, like, with, like, a director. And he's like, and I just finished making this movie for you. <laughs> you know, like, I, but I kind of like the charm that I know he's still just a magical character, you know. A part of me is, like, a little, like, let's make it too meta, but, like, I think he's very good in this. He's fun. I like he's, like, the one quickly. actor in the uh, live-action scenes that I'm like, because I feel like the ants are just a little too campy for me, but he's like actually like giving a sincere like magical performance, and I like that. Did you recognize um, Joanna Lumley as the ant from The Wolf of Wall Street? I have not seen The Wolf of Wall Street. Whoa! I have seen Elle Enchanted. She's in that. Wait a second. <laughs> Why have you not seen Wolf of Wall Street? She's in Paddington too, apparently. Uh, because it came out, you know. I still lived at home, so I need to find someone who'd go see this movie with me, and it was three hours long. You know, I didn't really want to go see it at 18 alone. My parents were like, oh, you know, you know, actually, let me, let me tell you this story. 
Actually, you know how a few weeks ago I said, you know, I don't really want to talk about religion on this podcast, my history of religion. I'm going to give you a rare history of Danny's uh, religion experience here. Because Wolf of Wall Street, you asked me that question, opens it up to it really well. 2013, I believe that was my senior year of high school. And, you know, I lived with my parents, so I still had to go to Sunday school every morning, you know, and then go to church afterwards. Because they want to go to small group. And, you know, didn't have my license, so I just had to go. And also, let's be real, whenever I visit my parents nowadays, they're like, if you're here Sunday morning, you gotta go to church, unless you really are overexhausted from hanging out with friends the night before. You know, because it's like, you live, you're living here, you're having our stuff, you gotta do it. And it's like, whatever, mom, whatever, dad, I don't care. This is a moment that I have told my parents directly led to my alienation with the church I grew up in. And in fact, my mom, I believe, has told me she's brought it up at church meetings as we need to watch out on alienating things, because my church, and this will come up in the story, but I'll just say it now, my church was about 80% homeschool kids, and then other people like me, who are like went to the public schools and just went to church. As such, it was super clicky, because these homeschooled people who all went to the same church together all hung up during the week together, too. All this to say, this is a story about Christmas 2013, around the time of Frozen. The story's not about Frozen. It's about how I went to see Anchorman 2, The Legend <laughs> continues opening <laughs> night. <laughs> Which came out the same weekend as The Hobbit, The Desolation of Smog. I go to church that Sunday morning. They all know I'm the movie guy, because that's always been my personality. One person at church goes, Danny, have you seen The Hobbit yet? Because I saw it and it was really good. And I say, no, not yet. My dad wants to see it. So I'm waiting to see it with him over Christmas, because, you know, he's busy during the week. And I was seeing Anchorman 2 on Friday with my friend anyway. And one of them goes, and this is like, it's not just one of them. It's the one that is... Be really awkward if he's listening to this, but I doubt he listens to this, even though he's still my Facebook friend. He is one who has since then grown up, left the church, uh, not like not like left the church, but like you know gone off to school, and then has been hired on as a pastor there now. Like he is at my church that I've grown up at, and that is where I bring up my mom bringing it up because my mom was like, I want to bring up that story about him when in his confirmation like like meeting where we vote whether to confirm or not because i think that is something that even if he was 18 at the time he should have known better than to like be a dick to you like that my mom didn't work like that because obviously it's about church she's not gonna use the terms be a dick but i say i'm gonna repeat what i just said so i can get back on the flow of the story which is like you know i haven't seen hobbit 2 yet but i did see anchorman 2 on friday and i really liked it don't hold me for that opinion i have not seen anchorman 2 since theaters <laughs> but i was like i really liked anchorman 2 and this guy just goes danny how could you see that movie? It's so, like, raunchy and, like, immature. My whole thought process at this time was, like, what? It's PG-13. Yes, it's got, like, some raunchy jokes. It's an Adam McKay, Will Ferrell movie. But it's PG-13. It's not like I saw The Wolf of Wall Street. <laughs> like, you know, like... <laughs> We got, and, to you know, the, we got to the punchline. <laughs> well, it was, it's, that's how it came up. But I, I feel like that is a very, like... Like, you know, to jump back to a month ago when we're talking about religion and my relationship with religion, that is very much a moment where I got pushed away from where I, like, grew up and going to church is, like, these people were judging me for seeing Anchorman 2. It's Anchorman 2. <laughs> yeah. That's, I mean, you probably you probably made the right choice if Anchorman 2 was something that was causing tension. The Wolf of Wall Street was probably, you know, a whole I mean, other I level. should watch Wolf of Wall Street. I'd probably like it. Um, I also I mean, know, you like, might you know like anytime it, you it's might... a three-hour movie, that's I have to watch at home. It's kind of like, do I want to? I'd rather watch this in a theater, you know? It's funny that you mention this because, I mean, like, on a whim... It might have been over the course of like three meals that day, but I rewatched The Wolf of Wall Street like a week ago 
And I mean, I'm curious what Julius thinks about it because I remember I think Julius we've talked loved to... it at the time. But go on. Yeah, I think that it holds up. Like I don't know. I really want to talk. I need to like look at what other people say. Wasn't about it, it considered? I feel like it was considered like. Well, I, I guess this happens like every five years for Martin Scorsese. It's like this is the late mainstream success for Martin Scorsese. Like it happened for The Departed. It happens for Wolf of Wall Street, and it just happened for The Irishman. You know, like and I well, say mainstream because Silence never ma- became he, mainstream. He releases a mainstream success and then does an art film, and it goes back and forth. And depending on like the production times, that's kind of how these things work out. One for them, My- one for me, one for. Them one for me. My point is more that since the departed, people are like, oh, Scorsese's getting really old. Who knows? You know, like that annoying type of attitude. He keeps on working on it. Although, of course, earlier today, we did get the sad news that Flowers of the Blood Moon was delayed here. <laughs> so it's like, no, Scorsese, please. What are we going to do? Means- like, gotta, we gotta bake the, the pasta. <laughs> Yeah, <laughs> that's that's how he talks. He's in yeah. his apartment. It's like it's like the cannoli is not done. So it's like if you, I listened to a blank if you try to release the cannoli today, when the cannoli is not done. This well, I heard a really bad uh, Martin Scorsese impression where it's like I'm just trying to remember what the camera is. I'm just trying to remember. What the- <laughs> yeah, that's that's not Martin Scorsese. That's I'm I'm just saying the Wolf of Wall Street has I think aged pretty well. There is what it is with it. It's not, but I'm saying it's not like the Irishman, where the Irishman came out and immediately people were like, "Why doesn't Anna Pekin talk?" Think, like it's it's so interesting and it really goes all in and how it shows you everything these terrible people are doing. And then there are moments of real like real discomfort in there too. It's such a it's such a subtle. Movie I, I really want to watch it because also I feel like the thing with Wolf of Wall Street that interests me. You know, I watch Goodfellas, right? I feel like Lorraine Bracco is such an underrated part of that film, and I feel like her career did not explode after it, even though it should have. But... You gotta watch The Sopranos, fam. Okay, okay. I guess well, that's I, fair. I, I guess that's very I fair, because I always think about movie stars. You're right. You're That's fair. But Margot Robbie was an unknown in Wolf of Wall Street, and obviously now she's like one of the biggest female stars ever. I think it's so interesting that one of our biggest female stars, especially when The Irishman, you know, the whole discourse was like, Martin Scorsese doesn't care about women, but it's like, okay, but literally like one of the top of the A-list right now for women came from her debut feature was a, or her big breakthrough role was a Martin Scorsese film. So like, and she gives a really good performance in it too. Yeah. I mean, I've heard it's fantastic. I need to watch it. Um, Truly like as soon as you have, as soon as you have three hours, just sit down and do it. If you like it, you'll really like it. And it'll just go by like like that. It's never screened here since I've lived in Chicago, but I feel like it is like a pretty popular Scorsese movie. Yeah. I don't know if it has the kind of, I don't know. I think people really need to come around to recognizing it as like a dark comedy other than just this weird frat movie. I don't know, who am I talking about? I was like, alright, there's this group over here, and they have this secret agenda, and then there's this group over here, and they have this agenda. I don't know what I'm talking about. It's free on Amazon. So let's, let's wrap this up Should we stop talking bit. about James and the Giant Peach and the Nightmare Before Christmas? Well, we will we'll wrap it up very quickly with saying, Joe Ranft, storyboards, do you think these films feel like they're made by a... I guess that's a weird way to put it, because I'm sure every stop-motion film does storyboards. I don't know. What do you think about the yes. Pixar connection here? Because the only thing I really feel here is Randy Newman. <laughs> Let's be real. Like, <laughs> I was surprised by the Randy Newman connection, but I mean, that is very real. I don't know if it's so wild because now we're in the feature film era. We, we spent so much time talking about how incredible the camera work and the editing is on Toy Story. And I just don't see it in these these movies. And I think that's more of a directorial choice. You know, compositionally, I... I don't really see a, a connection 
I, feel I mean, like... it's, I'm not saying it's there. Like, we're just saying, like, oh, well, there's it's negative because there's not a connection. It's obviously, like, this probably, like, really good storyboarding, and we just don't know. I'm glad we watched these movies. I'm not sure if it tells us anything except about how we've processed scary and movies I... as children. I feel like also it just kind of comes into this space where it's like, you know, as I said, he's like the the fifth beetle or whichever beetle we're getting at, Joe Ramp. Uh, <laughs> However many beetles like, there are, he's the well, other one. <laughs> yeah, it's just like, you know, I wish, because he did die tragically young, and I wish I could see how he would have developed as a storyteller, you know? Maybe, like, maybe he would have been one of Pixar's greats, you know? We don't know. Uh, and it's hard to be like, oh yeah, this is definitely Joe Ramp. I can feel his influence here. Because we don't really know what Joe Ram's artistic voice was. Even though he like he was really important at Pixar when he was alive. And I don't think these films really give us that insight because they are very much Henry Selleck films. Because Henry Selleck is a very singular animation director. Alright. Alright. What are we doing next time? Next time we return to the Pixar shorts. We get our first short, Pure Shorts and Snicknack. We're going to talk about Jerry's Game. Looking for the Ocean, a Pixar podcast, is produced by Mark Young and Danny Vincent. Our original logo was designed by Sarah Knopf. And you can find us at Facebook at Looking for the Ocean, a Pixar Journey. You can find us on Twitter at Pixar Journey and on Instagram at Looking for the Ocean Pod. You can also email us at Looking for the Ocean Pixar at gmail.com. If you want to know what I'm up to, everything is available on my website, markyoungperformer.com. You can listen to my other two podcasts, Wise with Ty and Dan and The Snub Club, wherever you can find your podcasts. You can also find me on Letterboxd at Blank Mints for all my takes on all of the movies. We'll see you next time. See you next time.